Amen. What a powerful truth to affirm this morning that from life's first cry to final breath, there's not a second of our lives in which Jesus Christ does not command our destiny. There's not a single moment of our life that is outside of the sovereign power of Almighty God. Church, we've come to a time when we gather now to look at God's Word and to ask the Holy Spirit to teach us this morning spiritual truth. And we are in a sermon series through the parables of Jesus. This will be our summer series that we'll be looking at as we'll be examining several of the parables of Jesus. Today we're in a parable called the parable of the weeds or sometimes referred to as the parable of the wheat and the tares. And that's found in Matthew chapter 13. And so if you have copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you once again to turn to Matthew chapter 13. We've been here for three sermons now, primarily because this is a very pivotal moment in the ministry and the life of Jesus as He begins to teach these parables. And so we're going to look at the next in the sequence of those parables in Matthew 13 called the parable of the weeds. While you're turning there, let me add my own congratulations to those who are our graduates that we recognized just a moment ago. Let me affirm uh, for you uh, the importance of the accomplishments that you've achieved to this point. Uh, I've been on that stage right where you are, standing in front of people, totally embarrassed to be standing there in front of a big crowd of people in the church, uh, but allowing them to affirm me. I've done it four times. Um, And each and every one of those situations, I came to that moment thinking that I had learned a whole lot up to that point and that I was ready to tackle the world only to find that I knew absolutely nothing (laughs) each and every one of those times. And so thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, families, for being here to support your graduates. Congratulations, graduates, on your accomplishment. And this is not necessarily the ending of anything. It's the turning from one chapter to another, and God is writing a great story in your life. And so continue to pursue the Lord with all of your heart and trust in Him and His ways. That's my encouragement to you. As you're looking at Matthew chapter 13, in just a moment, we're going to be looking at this parable, as we said, called the parable of the weeds. This is classified by most scholars as what's called a kingdom parable because at the beginning of the parable, Jesus says in verse 24, the kingdom of heaven is like. And so what He's telling us is He's giving us a parable to describe for us what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is one in a series of seven parables, seven metaphors or stories that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 13 to describe the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So this is a kingdom parable. And kingdom parables are given to us in the scripture to give us a better understanding of what the kingdom of God is. To help us to understand the inbreaking and the advancement of the kingdom of God against the fallen kingdoms of this world. So as we look at what Jesus is teaching us here, He's teaching His disciples and by extension teaching you and me that there is a kingdom which is invading into a broken, fallen world. There's the kingdom of God that has come. It begins when Jesus announces, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when Jesus begins to proclaim that, that you are to repent and and believe the gospel, that is the beginning in Jesus' ministry of the kingdom of God invading into a lost, broken world. And so what Jesus does for those who are following Him and, and those who are His disciples and those who are just people who are investigating Him is He continues to teach us what the kingdom of God is like and He does so 
through the use of parables. So this is a kingdom parable, but this is also what is often referred to as an eschatological parable. And what we mean by that is it's a, it's a parable that tells us about something that's going to happen at the end of the age, at the end of this particular world in which we live. Because Jesus tells us at the end of the parable, as we're going to read in just a second, about the, the end of the age and what's going to happen. And because of that, He's preparing us to understand something about the future and to be prepared to act upon it. So before we read the parable, I want to take a moment, because it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Matthew chapter 13, to reset the context in which Jesus speaks these words. These parables are not stories that Jesus gives us in isolation. These parables are given to us within a particular context. The writers of these Gospels present these parables where they do because contextually there's a story that they're telling us about Jesus and the parable fits within the greater context. The key to understanding a parable is not to take it and read it and say, well, what does that mean to you? Well, to me, what it means is that Jesus is saying this. The key to understanding a parable is to understand the context around it. Who is Jesus speaking to? What happened prior to this story that prompted Jesus to tell this parable? And in this particular case, over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the fact that Jesus is responding to the religious leaders who have begun to criticize him and even went so far as to attribute the very clear work of God that was being done through Jesus to being done through the power of Satan. We saw that a few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is teaching with authority. He's healing people. Miraculous things are happening. People are, thousands of people are crowding around to hear him teach. And in the middle of doing that, he, he heals a man. And when he does, the scribes and the Pharisees says, it's by the power of Satan that he cast out demons. And when that happens, Jesus draws a dividing line between those who are genuinely following and seeking him and those who who may be pretending to have God's interest at heart, but really don't. And so he begins to teach them in these parables, and he does so because as he teaches in parables, he's imparting spiritual truth, but some people have ears to hear and eyes to see what Jesus is saying because they have spiritually sensitive ears and eyes, and others like the scribes and the Pharisees and some in the crowd they don't understand the meaning of the parable because they don't have ears that are sensitive to spiritual truth. They don't have eyes that are sensitive to spiritual truths. And because of that, what they hear is a story and the meaning of the story gets lost to them. And so just prior to teaching this parable in Matthew 13, Jesus tells us about the parable of the soils, one of the most important parables which we looked at two weeks ago. And if you'll remember two weeks ago, we said that the main idea behind the parable of the soils in Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 9 is this. The main idea is that the greatest determining factor to the spiritual direction of a person is the condition of that person's heart to the Word of God. The most important determining factor to the spiritual direction that your life will take is your receptivity to the Word of God. And so with that in mind, Jesus follows up that spiritual truth by telling them another parable in which he also talks about fields and seed and sower, but he teaches a different spiritual truth, and the meaning of this parable is dramatically different. So with that in mind, let's read Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 24, and then we're going to read the explanation in verse 36. Jesus says, or the Bible says in Matthew 
he, Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. And so the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? Those would be the, the weeds. But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. That's the end of the parable. And he leaves the parable there for people to try to understand what is it that he's trying to talk about. The kingdom of heaven is like this man who goes out to sow seeds and in the process of sowing good seed in his field, an enemy tries to destroy what he's doing by sowing these imposters, these weeds into his field. And the master responds by saying, don't do anything about it now. Wait until the harvest and then we'll separate everything out and take care of it at that time. So sometimes when Jesus tells a parable, he leaves the parable there and he doesn't tell us anything else. Other times like this, we have the benefit that he gives us an explanation that helps us to have a little bit more insight into what he's saying. And so let's read the explanation of the parable beginning in verse 36. He tells the parable to the crowds knowing that in that crowd there's Pharisees, there's scribes, there's doubters, there's genuine seekers, there's people that don't know what to believe. He leaves the crowds in verse 36 and goes into the house in which he's staying and he has his disciples, those who are genuine followers of him. And his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. What they're saying here is, Jesus, we, we think we know what you're talking about here, but we need a little bit more information. We need you to explain it to us a little bit more. They were not 100% sure what Jesus was saying. So you can imagine that there were many in the crowds that had absolutely no idea what Jesus was saying. So Jesus answered them in verse 37 and says, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. That would be Jesus himself. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. And then he gives them the fullest explanation. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, but then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, understanding that there are some who have ears to hear and some who don't. So again, we have a parable about a farmer and a sower who sows seeds in his field, a very common everyday sight in first century Israel. And so Jesus, once again, using this illustration that everyone would be familiar with, is giving those who have spiritually sensitive hearts an important spiritual truth. 
And he does so by giving us the explanation that the sower that he's talking about is Jesus himself, the Son of Man. And the seed is the sons of the kingdom or those who would be true believers and true followers of Jesus. And so what is he saying? He's saying that Jesus, the sovereign king of this kingdom of God, is on a mission to advance his kingdom. And as he advances the kingdom, he accumulates along the way people who will believe in him and will submit to him as king. These are the sons of the kingdom. These are people who will respond positively to the gospel and surrender themselves to the king, King Jesus. And so the sower, King Jesus, is sowing into the field, the world, people who belong to him. He's placing people in every sphere of life, in every city, in every place, in every country, among every people group. He's placing people all around the world who are his children. But the enemy is Satan himself. And the weeds are sons of the evil one, or people whose allegiance and loyalty really lies with the prince of this world. And the enemy, Satan, has a plan to pollute and diminish the kingdom of God by sowing imposters into the world. He comes into God's field and he sows into the world people who who seem to have faith in the king, who seem from the naked eye to, to be followers of the king, but they are not. They are imposters. And he does so secretly or in such a way that it's not easily observed by the naked eye. Eventually, though, as time goes on, the seeds mature and it becomes clear to everyone around what is good seed that belongs to the king and what is false seed that belongs to the enemy. And now the master and the servants must decide what do we do next. The servants want to rip the weeds out, but the wise master knows that ripping out the weeds is not the best plan. Because by this time, the roots of both plants would have become intertwined. And pulling out the evil plants would do damage to the younger, immature plants. And so the master instructs them to patiently wait for the harvest and understand that at that time, the pure wheat would be separated from the invading imposter weeds and the weeds would be burned and destroyed. So what is the point of the parable? What is it that Jesus is trying to tell us here? We've, we've said that we need to understand when Jesus tells a parable, there's really one central point he's trying to get across to those who are hearing it and those who, who read it. There's one central point. There's dozens of personal applications, and we're going to look at some of them in just a second, but there's one central point. And the context help us, helps us to understand that Jesus, at this point in his ministry, is on a mission to advance and declare the kingdom of God. As he does so, hundreds of people hear his message. Hundreds of them see the miracles. Hundreds of them believe in him. But others are unsure. Others are still investigating. And they are young seed which hasn't had time to mature. And in the middle of this field where the master, King Jesus, is sowing the seeds of the kingdom, Satan has sown evil seed. Satan has sown imposters that are there to destroy genuine faith and to destroy genuine belief in Jesus. And this evil seed are the scribes and the Pharisees who publicly demean him. And Jesus understands that these men are not the genuine article, but that their evil hearts 
have not yet become visible to the rest of the people. And Jesus wants you and me as his followers to understand that he is on a mission through us, the church, to advance the gospel and to sow the seeds of the gospel and the kingdom of God throughout the world. And as we do so, millions of people have responded to the gospel. Millions of people. Many of you here today have responded to the gospel. And you are good seed. You are sons of God, sons of the kingdom. But as we sow that seed of the gospel and as we continue to preach and proclaim who the king is, Satan has also done a masterful job of sowing counterfeit and destructive seed which seeks to destroy the work of God. And we need to understand that Satan wants to destroy God's kingdom. He doesn't want the seed of the gospel to find good soil like we talked about a couple of weeks ago. He doesn't want the seed to fall on good soil where it will bear fruit and belief. He wants it to fall on hard soil. And he wants it to fall on rocky soil. And he wants it to fall on thorny soil. And so Satan is doing everything he can to destroy the advancement of the gospel. And he does so by sowing artificial seed. But ultimately, while his plans may find temporary success, as Jesus tells us at the end of the parable, his plans will ultimately fail. And so the main point of the parable is simply this. You see it on the screen. Despite the enemy's attempts to pollute and destroy it, the kingdom of God continues to advance to victory. That's the main point of the parable. Jesus is trying to help his disciples to understand that there's a battle going on right in front of their very eyes between him and the scribes and the Pharisees for the truth and for belief in the gospel and for who God really is and what God has really said. And and Satan has done a masterful job for, for centuries sowing religious imposters among the Jews such that they have led the people away from who God really is into a legalistic understanding and a, and, a, and a legalistic empty religion. And Jesus wants them to understand that the kingdom of God is coming. And it's coming through them. And as they continue to go into the world and He continues to, to go on this mission to the cross to redeem mankind, that people will believe in Him, but many others will not. And some of them will openly oppose the kingdom of God. But despite all of the enemy's attempts to pollute and destroy the church, to pollute and destroy the gospel, and to pollute and destroy the kingdom of God, there is coming a time when the master is going to separate out those who belong to him and those who don't, and the kingdom of God continues to march to victory. This has massive implications on us as the church of Jesus Christ. Because you and I live in a time that is marked in our culture by religious pluralism and confusion. We live in a time that is marked by the continual marginalization of those who are followers of Jesus. We live in a time where where there are multiple faiths competing for, for the marketplace of religion. And in the midst of all of that confusion and in the midst of all of that where people who genuinely believe that this is the Word of God, who genuinely want to follow Jesus, who genuinely believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That if we want to live by the precepts of this book and we want to stand on what God's Word says, we will continually be marginalized and pushed to the margins of society. It's important because we are seeing people in our culture who claim to have faith in Jesus 
who passionately advocate personal positions which are contrary to God's revealed Word. And we live in a time where people peddle a damning gospel of personal prosperity which turns God into some sort of religious Santa Claus instead of the sovereign king of the universe. And so in the midst of all of that, we have all of these people who claim to be Christians who advocate things in their own life and in the culture which clearly contradict God's word. And we have people who stand in churches with thousands of people and preach messages that supposedly come from this word which are clearly in contradiction to what the gospel says. Why? Because we have a master, a king, who is sowing good seed in his field, but all the while there is an enemy that is sowing false imposter seed who's seeking to destroy the work of the king. And we live in a time when it appears that the field in which we live is littered with weeds. And as the servants of Jesus, we ask the same question to the master. What are we supposed to do? (coughs) Do we trust in the power of the secular courts to change things in our culture? Do we hope that our lawmakers will pass laws that legislate morality? Do we close ourselves off from the world and just hope and some sort of spiritual kumbaya that Jesus comes back soon and takes care of it all? What are we supposed to do as followers of Jesus in a culture that continually marginalizes us? Well, we understand that the pollution of the kingdom of God has been going on ever since the day that Jesus announced its coming. That what's happening in our day and our time is not just is not just isolated to us, but it's been happening for 2,000 years. Ever since Jesus announced this to His disciples over 2,000 years ago, there's something been going on where Jesus is sowing His children in this world and the enemy is sowing imposters. But despite the enemy's attempt to pollute and destroy it, the kingdom of God will continue to advance victoriously. That's good news, people. And so with that in mind, there are four quick personal observations or or implications of this truth. If what Jesus is saying here is that He's on a mission to sow His kingdom and the enemy is seeking to destroy it, but He will not succeed, then what does that mean for you and me? Well, there's there's four things I can glean from this which I think apply to us. Number one is that we need to remember there is an eternal, invisible, spiritual battle taking place all around us all the time. There is an eternal, invisible, spiritual battle taking place around you and me all the time. Jesus says this in verse 24 when He says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. One of the main facts that we see right away at the beginning of this parable is the reality of spiritual warfare. Because we see Jesus, the King, on a mission to release people from a sinful, broken world by the power of the gospel. And we see an enemy that wants to do anything he can to thwart that mission. And most of us don't think about this point about an eternal, invisible, spiritual battle. Most of us don't give much thought to spiritual warfare because when we think of spiritual warfare, we often think of demonic oppression and possession or satanic expressions. And because many of us don't come across 
demonic possession, we tend to think that that's what spiritual warfare is all about. And we fail to understand this reality that every moment of every day of our lives is being played out against an invisible, eternal, cosmic backdrop of warfare between Satan and the kingdom of God. Every single moment of our lives. Even in this place right now, there is a cosmic, invisible, eternal battle going on for belief in the gospel. And some people are hearing the message that I proclaim this morning and it's resonating with you and you believe it and you're hearing it and you're beginning to apply it. And others, it's bouncing off of you just like seed falling on a path. It's been going on throughout eternity. This battle has taken place before anything existed on this planet. Isaiah 14 tells us that Lucifer was cast out and fell from heaven because he tried to exalt himself above God. And from that point on, the devil has been on a mission to destroy anything of God and to make himself greater than Jehovah. And he does so in such a deceitful way, just like this enemy coming in while while the servants were sleeping. He does it because... The Bible calls him an angel of light and that his primary strategy is not open evil but deceit and compromise. You see, we do not live our lives in a spiritual vacuum. Everything that you and I engage in has spiritual implications for our lives. Now this does not mean that everything that is bad that happens to us is an open demonic attack. But we must also be aware that the culture wars that we see currently in our society often have demonic origins because Satan wants to rob this world of the glory of God and supplant it with his own glory. And so when we see in our culture the destruction of unborn life in the womb, when we see in our culture the compromise of God's clear biblical standards, when we see in our culture the proliferation of filth and smut as entertainment, these are all part of a great cosmic battle against God and what God has declared to be good and right and true. We live in a God's field, but as we do, we have an enemy that is seeking to destroy the work of God. And so you and I need to remember and be alert to an eternal, invisible, spiritual battle that's taking place around us at all the time. Which brings us to the second observation, which is this. We need to recognize the difficulty of distinguishing genuine believers from counterfeit Christians. We need to realize the inherent difficulty of distinguishing genuine believers from counterfeit Christians. There's an interesting timeline that takes place between verse 25 and verse 26. Verse 25 says, While the servants, while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. But when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. What's happening there is the enemy doesn't sow the seed and the next day everything's very visible. It's likely several weeks or several months from when the sower sowed his seed to when the plants begin to sprout heads. And so what's happening here is for an indeterminable amount of time between verse 25 and 26, the dastardly deed of the enemy is not discovered. He's been successful because he's able to sow deceptively this confusion and and these two plants exist in the same soil and grow up for a while. And when when the sprouts begin to come up through the earth, they really look exactly alike for a while. 
The Greek word that is used here for weed is descriptive of a darnel weed which closely resembles wheat but is absolutely impossible to distinguish from true wheat until the time that the wheat ripens. The, the enemy understands that he needs to sow something as closely resembling the genuine article as possible for his plan to succeed. You see, here's the point. The enemy doesn't destroy the field by sowing something that would be easy to recognize. Instead, he sows an imposter that is virtually impossible to detect by normal human eyes. And this is what's happening in our church, and this is what's happening in our culture around us. Now, some have interpreted this parable of the field that he, he is referring to church or the local church. But Jesus tells us specifically that the field is the world. And so the point that Jesus is making is not just in the context of the local church, it's in the context of the entire world which belongs to God. That while Jesus sows the seeds of the gospel, and while many will come to faith in Him, Satan also sows deceptive imposters who might initially look like real Christians but are actually spiritually deceived, satanically inspired imposters. And this could be in the context of the local church, but it is most definitely within the context of how the church interacts in the world. And this is why, in our time, we have supposedly open-minded Christians who verbalize their personal faith in Jesus Christ and yet publicly advocate for positions which clearly compromise God's Word. This is why, on a local church level, we have people in local church pews who claim to be Christians and yet use the, the, the church as their own personal platform and often destroy and distract the church from the gospel. This is why we have hundreds of churches in evangelical Christianity today that are marked by squabbling and divisions on matters that have absolutely nothing to do with the gospel and the word of God. Because Satan has done a masterful job of helping us to create a culture where the only thing that identifies someone as a Christian is what they verbalize with their mouth and what they say they affirm instead of what is actually true and what's going on inside of their heart. This is why we have inflated church membership roles that are filled with the names of people who publicly pronounce themselves as Christians and yet they have no love for God's church, no spiritual fruit, and they live morally bankrupt and compromised lives. Because it's impossible for a while to distinguish genuine belief from counterfeit Christianity. And listen carefully as I say this. Just because you advocate in your head an acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross and rose from the grave does not equate with genuine saving faith. Let me say that again. Just because you advocate in your head and with your lips an acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross and rose from the grave does not equate to genuine saving faith. I know because I advocated those things for 17 years while I was lost. When we see the true disciples of Jesus separated from the imposters, is when it's time for the fruit to be developed. The fruit reveals the true spiritual condition. When the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. Then it became distinguishable. It's the presence of the fruit that reveals the true spiritual condition. 
Which brings us to the third point, which is that you and I as followers of Jesus, what do we do? We balance our godly zeal with patient trust in the master's plan. We balance our godly zeal to want to see the kingdom of God advance with patient trust in the master's plan. Verse 28, he said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said, do you want us to go and gather them then? Do you want us to go rip the weeds out? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat with them also. Let both grow together until the harvest. At the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Once the servants discover the imposter's plan and the destruction of the Lord's field, their first attempt is to clean house, to rip out the weeds. But Jesus reminds them and reminds us to be patient And to balance our godly zeal for God with trust that our Lord has a plan. Notice the master's reaction. Notice not only what he does, but notice what he doesn't do when his servants reveal to him the news that there were weeds and imposters in his field. He doesn't burn down the field. He doesn't go out and light the field on fire and just burn up everything and start over again. Have you ever wondered that? Why doesn't God just burn it all up and start over again? I'm going to tell you why in just a second. He doesn't plow everything back up. He simply instructs patience until the harvest because the master understands that if the workers go out in the field to pull out the weeds, they will trample the good plants in the process and the roots have become so intertwined that they will rip up the wheat before it's ready and before it's matured. And this is a reminder to us of God's patience with the lost and the unredeemed in our world. It's a reminder to us that our God is a very patient God with those who are lost. Romans 2.4 says, Do you presume upon the kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Our God is a patient God. I am grateful that God was patient with me for 17 years of false faith before I became a true follower of Him. 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient with you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. We must realize in our zealousness to advance the kingdom of God and to resist the demonic activity of Satan in our culture, that we must exercise patience and a convictional kindness towards those with whom we disagree. We cannot allow ourselves to be defined as Christians by impulsive reactions that hurt the cause of the gospel. Which is the reason why not everything that you feel like putting on your Facebook in response to the culture is always the right thing to put up there. We can't allow ourselves to be defined by impulsive reactions. We cannot attempt to advance the kingdom of God solely on the back of political power plays. Because the reality of it is is that we are fighting many things within our culture wars, but listen carefully, it is ultimately will not be the rightness of our cause, but the graciousness of our lives which leads people to Jesus Christ. You were not one to the gospel because of the rightness of your argument, of someone else's argument. You are one to the gospel because of the graciousness of God towards you. And so we need to balance our zeal to see God's kingdom advance with patience that the master has a plan. 
Which brings us to the fourth and final point quickly, which is we need to remember the reality of the future and final harvest. The whole point of the parable is to lead us to what Jesus says in verse 30 when he says that that there's going to become a harvest in which the weeds are gathered and, and put into bundles to be burned and the wheat is gathered in the barn. In verse 39, he says... Um, In verse 39 through 43, he says that the harvest is the end of the age, and just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be terrible things, weeping and gnashing of teeth, but the righteous will then shine like the sun in the kingdom of His Father. Ultimately, this is a parable that Jesus gives us as His disciples to point us to the reality of a future and final spiritual harvest in which those who belong to Satan will be separated from those who belong to Christ. And He's teaching His disciples that while it may seem at time like evil advances unhindered, there is a final day of reckoning coming. And once the harvest takes place, once Jesus returns and sends His angels to gather His harvest, The weeds that are in this world will no longer serve any positive purpose in His future kingdom. They will have served the enemy's purpose for a while, but now they are simply fodder to be destroyed. And it's an important reality that you and I need to understand that is this. And listen carefully. Every person on this planet is either a wheat or a weed. Every person on this planet is either a son of the king or a son of perdition. There is no neutral. If you have never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, then you are not living a spiritually neutral life. You are a weed that is destined for destruction. And it was this spiritual reality that I heard from about a five foot seven evangelist when I was 17 years old who preached on this passage and spoke into my heart and showed me the reality of the gospel as he stood there and said, every person in this place today is either a wheat or a tear. There is no neutral. You are one or the other. Are you a wheat or are you a tear? Are you, a, are you one who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ or are you an imposter that's been sown into the world? You're one or the other. And I sat there sweating bullets that day because while I had gone to church all my life, I couldn't answer that question. And because of that, I came forward that morning and I confessed my sin and I confessed my trust in Jesus Christ. And from that day forward, I've been a child of God and a son of the kingdom. You see, every person in this room is either a wheat or a tear. You're either a son of the kingdom of God and a true believer in Jesus Christ, or you're an imposter belonging to the enemy. But the good news of the gospel is that it's never too late to trust in Jesus. It's never too late to change your eternal destiny. I know this because I watched my father struggle with faith for the first 36 years of my life. In which I knew that he knew a lot of things about God. I knew he knew a lot of things about who God was. He knew a lot of the truth of the gospel. But he never truly trusted the gospel. He never truly followed Christ. And in his 50s he said, you know what? I'm tired of doing life my way. I need to change. And someone led him to Jesus Christ and he became a follower of Christ. And today, he's a son of God. It's never too late to change your destiny. But the reality of it is is that every person in here is one of those two things. You are either 
a good seed that's been sown by the Lord Jesus into his field, or you're an enemy of God. You're a seed that's been sown by the enemy whose purpose is to thwart and destroy God's work. And there is no middle ground. There is no neutral. And so my question for you is this. Do you know that you know that you know that you belong to Jesus Christ? Do you know that? Because if you don't, we don't want you to leave here today without an opportunity to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In just a moment, David's going to come. He's going to lead us in a song. and We're going to give you an opportunity to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. A lot of times we do this in a church by asking people to walk forward and and maybe you don't feel comfortable doing that today. Maybe you say, you know what, I'm really confused about where I stand with Jesus. I'm really confused about my spiritual standing. I I resonate with your story, Matt, but I'm not ready to walk in front of a bunch of people and confess that and admit that this morning. Let me ask you this. Let me plead with you. If you have any question whatsoever about your eternal future, do not leave this place today without talking to me or talking to somebody about that. Because the Bible says today is the day of salvation. And there is coming a future and final harvest where all of it will be separated out and all of it will be revealed. And at that point in time, it will be too late to say, God, I've changed my mind. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes in just a moment? As we sing this song, we want to invite you to trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you need to come today for some other reason. Maybe you just need to come for prayer over a personal struggle that you're having in your life with Christ. Whatever it is, we want to invite you to do that today. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the good king and the good master who sows good seed in your field. And now we confess to you today, Lord, that we want to trust in you. We want to follow you. But we know that there are people in this place today who do not have genuine saving faith. There are thousands within this city today who who believe that they're They belong to you, but the reality of it is is that they do not know you as their Lord and Savior. There are millions in our country and billions around the world who have yet to respond to the gospel. So God, help us as your children to be agents of the gospel and help those who are fighting for belief to trust you today. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Respond as the Lord Jesus Christ leads you.